Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn to God's Word this morning, and we turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as we come to the end of this chapter. Now, if you've noticed in the bulletin, maybe underneath the sermon title each week, we have a, a title for this series in Ephesians. And the series title is United in Christ, Saved by Grace to Live for Him. That's really what we've been seeing from the text of Ephesians. After three chapters in which Paul talked about God's grace to save us from our sin. He's now talking about how God's people can live for Him. Last week, we looked at verses 17 through 24, where Paul laid his theological foundation for why the believer in Christ ought to live in righteousness and holiness. And Paul's point, if you were here with us last week, was that when we repent and put our faith in Christ, God does not just save us from our sin, He also recreates us by the power of His Spirit. He unites us to Christ, who Himself teaches us to put off the old self with its deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God Himself, in righteousness and holiness. And because of what God has done for us and in us, we, as followers of Christ, ought now pursue holiness in our lives. Well, now, Paul's going to turn to the specifics of what it looks like to live in righteousness and holiness. In fact, the remainder of Ephesians will really be spent talking about what it looks like to live in holiness. But this morning, we'll focus on the end of chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to read with me Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. Listen to God's Word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh, our great God, how we thank you for your word. We thank you that you revealed yourself to us, that you have spoken and told us how we might please you, how we might honor you, and how we might live in the likeness of God as you've recreated us in Christ. 
Would you be with us now as we study your word for Christ's sake? Amen. Later this summer, in August, a highly anticipated trial is about to begin. It's the trial of Elizabeth Ann Holmes. If you're not familiar with Holmes, in 2003, she dropped out of Stanford at the age of 19, only to lead one of the hottest startups in Silicon Valley. Her company, Theranos, claimed to have created revolutionary blood testing technology and was the darling of investors nationwide. By 2015, Forbes magazine said that Theranos was valued at $9 billion and they named Holmes the youngest, wealthiest self-made woman in American history. But there was a problem. Theranos was a sham. All of the products they'd created did not actually work. And so as journalists and regulators uncovered these issues throughout 2015 and into 2016, Forbes magazine published a new article in 2016 stating that Holmes' net worth was actually zero, and they renamed her one of the world's most disappointing leaders. Holmes now faces trial for criminal wire fraud and falsified results. There's a certain interest to these stories, And when we hear stories like this, we may be surprised that someone would take these sorts of criminal risks in order to achieve certain gains. But we are not surprised when we see dishonesty and theft and corruption in the world around us. But things take a different turn when that dishonesty, theft, and corruption is committed by Christian leaders and pastors. When Pastor Mark Driscoll was accused of plagiarism, anger, and abusive treatment of his church staff in 2014, or when a Chicago pastor was found out last year to have embezzled nearly a million dollars in government funds, falsifying how much aid his church distributed and pocketing the excess funds, we're grieved. We're grieved at a whole different level. And it's not because we're surprised at remaining sin in Christians. That should not surprise us at all. Nor are we grieved because we are above dishonesty or anger ourselves. Any look at ourselves would tell us that's not the case. We're grieved because these are behaviors that a follower of Christ has been taught to put off. They contradict our identity. They grieve God's Holy Spirit. And they shame the name of our Savior. God's people are to put off such sin and put on holiness instead. And that is really Paul's main point for us this morning. In fact, I think Paul's main point can be summarized with one word. It's the first word in verse 25 that started our passage. What's the first word? Therefore. If God has recreated us in Christ, therefore, there are specific sins we are called to put off and specific actions of godliness and righteousness we are called to put on instead And in this passage before us this morning, Paul is going to detail five of these areas that we are to put off sin and put on righteousness. And before we look at these five specific areas, I want to just draw your attention to a couple of things. First, I want to note that all through this passage, Paul always notes the behavior that we are to both put off and the behavior that we are to put on in its place. And this, of course, is a core principle for growing in holiness. If we only focus on what we are not to do and don't take any 
emphasis on what we are to do in its place, we are unlikely to make much progress in genuine holiness. I think any of us who have had a habit or an addiction that we wanted to stop know this. We can't just say, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, and expect to make progress. It would be like deciding to go on a diet with only processed foods in the pantry and soda in the refrigerator. If you don't have any of the things you're supposed to eat instead on hand, your diet is likely to be a challenge. But of course, at the same time, we are not supposed to only put emphasis on what we are supposed to be doing. We must also have an intentional focus on putting off sin as well. And if we only focus on what we are supposed to do, that would be like adding kale and spinach to our plate, but giving no effort to giving up ice cream and Doritos. So just like a successful diet, growing in holiness will come when we follow the scriptural pattern to both put off sin and put on righteousness in its place. The other thing I want us to notice as we move through Paul's words is how in each category, Paul repeatedly references or quotes the Old Testament. And he's reminding us that this list of virtues is not some new program for Christians to live respectable lives. No, these verses reflect just how God has always called his people to live because they reflect his law, which in turn reflects his own character. So this passage is not about moralistic living. It's not about do this or or don't do that. It's a series of snapshots of showing us how to live out the character of God in real life by the power of God's Spirit within us. So I want us to see that as we move through as well. But with these in mind, let's look at the details. First, in verse 25, Paul says that we are to put away falsehood and we are to put on speaking the truth with our neighbor. In other words, honesty, genuineness, truth, and trust should mark God's people. And at the same time, we should put away anything that deceives. Lies, dishonesty, pretense, hypocrisy, speaking things or shaping facts in order to give an impression that's not fully true. We are to cultivate truth and put off anything that would deceive or mislead in its place. Now, what I want us to see is that Paul, when he says that we should speak the truth with our neighbor, is actually picking directly up on God's word from Zechariah chapter 8. And we just preached through Zechariah not long ago. But there in chapter 8, Paul had given Israel a vision of the day of salvation and his promises that he would return and dwell with his people. And he said that when he saved them and returned to dwell with his people, Jerusalem would be called the faithful city, or as it is also translated, the city of truth. And then in verse 16, God says, since I have purposed to bring about good for you, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Now Paul is picking up on this very language. God has now acted in Christ. God has begun to fulfill the promises that he gave Israel in Zechariah chapter 8 to redeem his people. And so again now he calls us to speak the truth with one another. And Paul gives us a further motivation for why we ought to put away falsehood and put on truth. He reminds believers that we are members one of another. We're part of the same body in Christ. And to lie or to deceive one another would be like the hand stabbing the stomach. 
the body undermines itself. And that is not how God's people are to act. Now, my guess is that every single one of us, ever since we ate or said we ate our broccoli, but actually spit it into our napkin instead, which I'm pretty sure is the quintessential childhood lie, eating vegetables. And since then, we've probably been taught not to lie. And most of us know that we are not to lie. But Paul is calling us to something more than that. I think Paul is calling us here to a truthfulness in life that reflects the character of God himself. I would be the first to admit in my own life that while I know not to lie, I think that it's amazing how quickly the fear of man or the shame of a particular situation or the desire for something can tempt me to exaggerate or shape what I say to give an impression that's not fully accurate or honest. And Jim Boyce once commented that many of us actually lie unintentionally because we are not in the habit of rigorously cultivating truth, accuracy, and genuine honesty in the fear of God rather than the fear of man in all of our words and actions. And we remember as God's people that even as we are members of one another who are recreated by God's Spirit to live after His likeness as the God of truth, we are called to put off every form of falsehood and to put on and cultivate truth as we speak the truth to one another. So that's snapshot number one. In verse 26, though, Paul goes on to snapshot number two. And once again, Paul turns to the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 4.4, Be angry and do not sin. Now, this is a phrase that can trip us up a little bit. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible constantly tell us not to be angry? Even down in verse 31, Paul's going to tell us to put away all wrath and anger. So what does God's word mean when it says, be angry and do not sin? I think most commentators are right in their agreement that we should understand this phrase in the sense of, in your anger, do not sin. And what this reflects is that there is a righteous, inappropriate anger. After all, anger is an attribute of God, his wrath and anger against sin. In fact, John Stott argues that Christians at times compromise with sin in a way which God never does. And in the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. The bland tolerance that takes offense at nothing is not virtue, but apathy. And we ought to pray that God would show us if we are complacent about sin in our hearts in any way. But even if anger is righteous, the question then is, well, what should we do with this? And how do we know when this anger becomes sinful? After all, as one commentator quipped, every single one of us is apt to think that our anger is righteous indignation and his anger is a bad temper. In fact, I think we can say that righteous anger and sinful anger sometimes act like identical twins. Unless we know them well and look with discernment, they can appear and feel exactly alike. And so we need to discern our hearts. Paul says that in our anger, we must not sin. Well, what are the things that make anger sinful? It would be spite or bitterness that comes into our heart. Injured pride that leads us to respond with anger. 
a motivation of revenge or a desire to punish someone for what they have done to us, an attitude of arrogance or belittling of others that stirs anger, or an animosity or hatred of one another are all sins that can enter into our anger even if we began with a righteous or appropriate anger. There's an article in First Things magazine a few months ago that I think beautifully put it this way, anger that is untempered by patience and prudence, anger fixed on revenge or the vindication of myself, anger not directed to the common good or absent of genuine love becomes an instrument of self-righteousness and a weapon against others. In your anger, do not sin. And then Paul adds that we must not let the sun go down on our anger. Now, anger is a powerful emotion, a fact that is not lost on our journalists and politicians, I think. But God warns us that anger should never be harbored or nurtured in our hearts. Even righteous anger should not be allowed to fester in our hearts. Now, this phrase about not letting the sun go down on our anger, as one commentator pointed out, is not so much about a specific timeline. It's not as if if you live in Greenland, you get 23 hours to enjoy your anger in the summer and only 30 minutes in the winter. The point is that we do not nurture or allow anger to remain in our hearts. It must be resolved. Either we resolve the situation with someone, or we overlook an offense, or we forgive the offense, or we turn it over to the Lord to handle as he says he will do in Romans chapter 12. But anger must never be given leash in our minds where Satan can have an opening and an opportunity to ensnare us. So in your anger, do not sin and do not let it fester in your hearts. Well, then Paul goes on in verse 28 to give us a third snapshot of holiness. He calls the thief to no longer steal, but to labor doing honest work that we may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, Paul tells us what we are to put off. The thief is no longer to steal. And I, when I read this, think, okay, good. I think I'm in pretty good shape there. But of course, we need to remember that theft is not just taking someone else's possessions or money, though that is theft, but it's also ripping off a customer or your younger brother by selling them something that is actually worthless. It's borrowing or not repaying. Wasting time or working lazily so that we rob our employer of the labor he is paying for. When I think about working lazily or wasting time, I don't know about you, but my mind goes to all of the jokes we probably have about construction workers. It's summertime, you drive around and we have all sorts of jokes to quip about these crews. What's the difference between a PennDOT worker on the job and a PennDOT worker on lunch break? One's holding a sandwich. So we have all these jokes and these, these quips, but the question is, have we examined our own hearts and actions in the work that God has called us to? But I want us to note that the follower of Christ is not just called to put on a life that works hard and works honestly. Notice here in verse 28 that Paul also tells us why we are supposed to work. And this, I think, as Americans is where Paul challenges one of the great blind spots of our hearts. See, in the West, increasing wealth is typically the goal of work and a chief measure of success. 
I was reading an article this past week that noted that in 2014, the UK changed the way it counted its GDP and discovered that actually its economy was 5% larger and growing faster than it previously thought, which was heralded to national acclaim around the UK. Now, what did the UK change? Well, it decided to add illegal drugs and prostitution to its GDP figures. The article commented, quoting Simon Kuznets, the Nobel Prize-winning economist who designed the first GDP measure in 1934, but cautioned this. He said, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from the measure of its income. Well, I think it's Maybe important for us to say that the welfare of an individual or a family can scarcely be inferred from the size of its income. Because many of us may wholeheartedly agree that Christians should put off stealing. But the Bible immediately adds that we must put on a heart that not only gives, but views giving as one of the primary motivations for working in the first place. Why do we get up on Monday morning and go to work? Why do we have a job in the first place? Paul says that one of the central motivations for getting up tomorrow morning and going to work should be that we have something to give. Once again here, Paul's relying right on the Old Testament. Of course, the Eighth Commandment reminds us that we must not steal, but the Old Testament also calls God's people to a generosity to care for those who are vulnerable in their midst. And I think Paul is exactly echoing Proverbs twenty-one twenty-six in this passage which says, all day long the sluggard craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. And again, of course, this is based directly on the character of God. And how much more now that God has not just been generous with us, but has given to the point of sacrifice, giving up his only son to death on the cross that we might be redeemed. Ought we as God's people be unchecked and our generosity, even to the point of sacrifice, doing honest labor so that we will have something to share with anyone who is in need and for the sake of the kingdom of God. Well, we move now to the fourth snapshot, which is found in verse 29, where Paul caused the Ephesians to put off any corrupting talk Now, the word corrupting here is a word that's often used for decaying trees and rotten fruit. If you've ever bitten into a piece of fruit that was rotten, you have an idea of what we're talking about here. Talk that is gross, that is unwholesome, that does you no good at best, but is bitter and harmful at worst. But in addition, you know how rotten fruit works, right? If you buy a container of strawberries and one of them is thoroughly rotten, what does it do to the other strawberries in the container? If it's allowed to sit there, it makes them rotten as well. It spreads. And isn't that so often the case with our words? That one person can, through corrupting talk, cause sin to spread to an entire group of our brothers and sisters in Christ? And so Paul calls us to put off words that are harmful or vulgar or unkind, ungrateful, distasteful, or unhelpful. And in their place, the believer should actively fill their minds with words that are good for building up and fit the occasion and give grace to those who hear. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I've said plenty of careless words in my life. 
I started thinking about illustrations and examples I could use in my sermon and realized I could use up the rest of the sermon with very, very poor choices of words that would cause you to either groan or laugh for the remainder of the time. And we do need wisdom to speak words that are fitting and not careless. But I don't think that's the primary focus of this verse. Because careless words are not our biggest problem. What does Jesus say in Luke 6? He says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our greatest need is to examine our hearts. Because our cutting words, our vulgar words, our complaining and grumbling words come from our hearts. And once again, Paul turns to the Old Testament to emphasize this for the Ephesian believers. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul is picking directly up on Isaiah 63 verse 10 here. Isaiah has just recounted how God saved his people from Egypt, brought them out by a strong arm, and led them by his own presence through the wilderness. But in the face of God's redemption, Israel responded by grieving his Holy Spirit. How did Israel rebel and grieve God's Holy Spirit? Well, it started with words, didn't it? Complaints, grumbling, slandering the character of God and of Moses. Why'd you take us out of Egypt to kill us in the desert? Turning one another against God and his promises so that instead of building one another up, God's people corrupted each other while God's own spirit was in their midst. Well, now... God's Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us, to unite us together as one people of God, to recreate us in His likeness. How much more now if our mouths pour out corrupting words flowing from self-aggrandizing or unclean hearts, will we grieve the Holy Spirit of God that is in us? And notice how personal this is. Paul does not say corrupting talk disobeys God as if it's against his law, although that is certainly the case. No, he says these words grieve and offend his Holy Spirit who dwells in us and seals us and claims us for the day of redemption. And so we are to put off any corrupting talk and put on words that build up and give grace that we might not grieve the Holy Spirit of God that is in us. Well, finally, look there to verse 31. Paul closes with an appeal to put off all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. This list runs the gamut from cynical, negative, resentful spirit to hostility, quarreling, and speaking evil of one another all of which are unbefitting of the believer in Christ. Now just reflect for a moment on the relational damage that is done in the body of Christ because of anger and fighting, bitterness, cynicism, slander that clings to our hearts and comes out of our mouth. But we've been made new in Christ I'm called to put these attitudes off and to instead be kind to one another and forgive one another. Of course, these qualities describe the person whose heart is compassionate toward one another, eagerly speaking what is good, quick to give grace, overlook offense, restore and preserve relationship despite our sins that rub up against one another in our lives together. 
And as you will notice, as we come to the end of the passage, the force of this call comes from Paul's final comment. You see it there in verse 32. We are to be kind to one another and forgive one another. How? As God in Christ has forgiven us. This gives us our standard. We are to be kind and to forgive like God has been kind and forgiven us. And God's character is particularly marked by the fact that His kindness and His forgiveness are shown to those who are unworthy of it. And when we talk about being a kind person, I think most often we mean that we're not mean-spirited. To the people around us, we're good-willed, we're kind. When I tell my child to be kind, I mean don't be an initiator of evil and annoyance. But in Luke 6, we're told that God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. We will be putting on the clothing of the new man created in the likeness of God when our kindness and tenderness and forgiveness is extended to those who have annoyed us, who have been ungrateful, who even have offended us and extended forgiveness to them because our standard is God himself. And Christ is not just our standard for this, he's also the motivation for this. Why can we forgive others? How can we forgive and be kind to others? It's when we recognize the depth of our own sinfulness and our own helplessness and the extent of God's gracious kindness to us to take the initiative to send his own son to die for us that we can extend kindness and forgiveness that we have received to others. Well, these are five snapshots of holiness that Paul gives us. Behaviors to put off and to put on as followers of Christ. And God has been so good and so gracious to give us these instructions. Can you imagine how many excuses our hearts would come up with if God had just spoken at the 10,000 foot level and said, be holy and put off sin? Oh, we'd see all sorts of ways that everyone else should put off sin and put on holiness, but we'd have all sorts of nooks and crannies to hide in. But God has not done that. In His goodness, He has given us the Bible with specific details on how we can live out His character in our hearts and in our minds, in our lives, in our actions. You know, God's Word is His principal tool of sanctification in our lives. God's Word is that sword, that, or that, that instrument that is sharper than a two-edged sword that strikes to the core of our being. God's Word is how He reveals sin in our hearts and calls us to holiness. And so I would encourage you this week as you think back to this passage to take time to pray about one or two specific things that God has called us to and ask that God's Spirit would convict you and strengthen you to put off sin and put, off right, put on righteousness as Christ has taught us. Of course, such a specific list can also lead us to legalism and a, and a facade of righteousness, can't it? We can come to a passage like this and think, great, so all I have to do is put on good words and, and not steal and, and, and work hard, and I'm good. And so we also need to remember that putting on a sheep costume doesn't make you a sheep. This passage isn't given us only to put on certain actions, which is why Paul started with the facts of the gospel in Ephesians. 
Because the main point of Scripture is not to make people good. The main point of Scripture is to reconcile sinful men and women to a holy God through the good news that Jesus died in our place and took the penalty for sin that we deserved and rose again for our salvation to remake us in His image. And only if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior does God send His Spirit to recreate us after the likeness of God and to teach us to put off sin and to put on righteousness so that we might please Him. And so this morning, if you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, I encourage you to do that this morning. It is the only way that we can be rescued from sin and given a new heart and a new desire and a new ability to live in godliness. But if you are here this morning and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then what a gift God's word is to us this morning. Because our desire is to please Him. And in His Word, God has told us specifically how to live out His character, stirring our hearts to please Him. So that as Jesus says, when others see your good deeds, they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May God work that in us this week for His glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You this morning. We know our sinfulness. We know the remaining areas of sin in our hearts and lives. And our desire, God, is that you would give us growth and holiness and righteousness. Father, how we thank you for remaking us in your image through Christ. Would you continue to work in us now to strengthen us to put off sin and to put on holiness. That your name might be glorified as we look ahead to that day when you will return and we will be made perfect and will dwell with you forever. What a hope it is and how we thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, Contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.